Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodow. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands, wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide. The pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking with Richard Ramsey, co-founder of Living Works. This is the second episode in season three of A World Where Living Works, a season focused on learning about the history and evolution of their groundbreaking suicide first aid training practices, now being taught around the world. We know Living Works today as a global leader in suicide intervention. Thousands of trainers in workplaces and communities around the world teaching gold-class suicide first aid programs, like the two-day assist workshop, the half-day safe talk suicide alert helper workshop, and now the 90-minute online interactive introduction to suicide first aid, Living Work Start. These are programs that have been endorsed in more than 50 peer-reviewed journals around the world that have informed international policy and are implemented everywhere from schools to military bases, hospitals to sport clubs, and everything in between. Now, in episode one, we talked with Richard about the early days, some 40 years ago. Make sure you have a listen to that episode if you missed it. I won't give too much of a spoiler, but let's just say that a film student and a road trip weren't what I was expecting. Today, we're continuing that chat, having a look at how this new curriculum, Teaching People Suicide First Aid, was put to the test in Canada and then further afield. Hi again, Richard. Hello, Kim. Richard, so you've got the curriculum framework stepped out. What next? Yeah. And so with that information and the attitude information that formed the framework or the structure of the curriculum that it looked like we couldn't do it in an hour. We couldn't do it in a day. We tested a number of models and the optimum was two days. And that gave people in the attitudes part time enough to digest different opinions and dialogue with others and to also decide whether or not they were going to change any of their attitudes. And going away overnight after the first day, I think, is an important reflection time too because it's two days, but you also have that break between the days where you're mulling things over in your head. Yeah. And in the very early days, because of other research that I was involved in, and Brian too, but we were doing research on the magnitude or the prevalence of suicide in a community because the literature of the day said they just spoke to the tip of the iceberg. So X number of people who died, and even though it was a top 10 deaths, it still was a low base rate. It was considered rare. So that allowed a lot of people just brush it aside. But when we did the prevalence study, a community-based random sample study, 
we discovered that the ratio of those who die by suicide statistically, it's 100 to 1 to those who have attempted or seriously thought about it. And then there's another six or more people who are affected by someone's death or attempt. And so you can see the iceberg below the ocean is bigger and bigger and bigger. So in the early days, when we taught an actual attitude, knowledge, and skill module, we had them kind of separated. In the knowledge module, we presented this evidence of the magnitude and that it was bigger than the tip. But we weren't sure whether the audience was going to accept that. So we actually said, with this magnitude, you have to decide whether or not it's worth your time to spend two days in this kind of training. Because if it doesn't matter to you, or if you don't think, or if you think you've got other things to do. (laughs) Don't spend the time. Yeah. And we actually gave people the opportunity to leave at that moment, sort of at noon of the first day, I guess, something like that. And said, you know, no fault finding. It's just that you have to try and commit to the fact that it's going to take two days to get through this. And if you don't think that number is big enough to bother, then you might as well leave. Today, we don't do that. It's the same kind of message, but it's sort of along the line of stick it out for the two days and we think you're going to change your mind. (laughs) Yeah, we think you'll agree that it was a valuable use of your time. Yeah, yeah. So we're not quite as forgiving this time as in terms of leave if you feel like it after the first couple of hours. So we developed the two-day curriculum, and then we started to have the training for trainer concept. And we thought that, well, how many in this province actually are interested in crisis intervention work? Because that's pretty scary, and it's uh, it's high risk, and You never know what's going to come at you. Yeah, with the best intentions, I can be a good citizen. But yeah, if you say the word crisis too many times, it's a bit scary. Yeah. So we thought there might be 100 people in the province that might be interested in taking this training for trainer pilot. And we had funding for 40 seats. So we figured it, it wouldn't be too hard to scale 100 down to 40. But when we put the advertisement out, if you want, we got 400 people Wow! saying they were interested. <laughs> wow. So then we had to figure out a way to screen 400 down to 40. And that was tough. But it was also our first experience at discovering that you cannot come up with, if you want a paper and pencil test to predict whether you're going to become a star in the training or you're going to be a dud. (laughs) And we tried that. We put people in the top quarter and then the second best quarter, and we cut them off at the third quarter. And so there was a bunch in the fourth quarter that we just said, no, you're not going to be able to take this training. Well, after we did the first pilot, we discovered some of our paper stars were duds. And some of those who were marginal were brilliant. So then we started thinking, oh, my God, how many in that fourth quarter did we? Who have we let go? Yeah, did we throw out who were really good? (laughs) And that was the beginning of saying that we're not going to trust pre-screening kind of instruments. The, The people have to go through it. They have to decide for themselves. If they're really bad, we'll try and coach them out. <laughs> but if they even get into the field, then the, if you want the free enterprise of the community, will take care of that because other trainers won't train with them or the community will complain that that's a bad trainer. 
Or even as an individual, you won't open up to that person anyway. Yeah, yeah. If they don't have those skills. So they'll screen themselves out or the community will screen them out. So that became a pretty important philosophy for us in training for trainers. Originally, once we put people through the first two days of the workshop, then on Tuesday night, we would sit up until midnight or late at night analyzing all these people as to who was likely to be good and bad and so forth. And again, we discovered we might as well have gone to bed <laughs> <laughs> because because our predictions didn't turn out that way on Friday. And we had what is now referred to in many cases as Friday miracles, that people we thought were going to really have a bad time when they had to get up and present and so forth. With all the anxiety, they aced it. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It's like all the debate around suicide risk assessment itself. You know, we went from the checkbox approach to human beings yeah. are complicated and individual. It's a conversation and sounds like the same with yeah. assessing trainers. Well, yeah, exactly. And when we started, the only literature that was available was from the Los Angeles Center in Los Angeles, by and large. And they had done some research that came up with the categories of risk. And so they identified seven categories. One had to do with age and sex and stress and symptoms and current behavior and resources and current plan. And at the end of that, you would make it to whether an assessment as to whether they were high risk, medium risk, or low risk. Well, Brian and I, because we had been involved in clinical kind of work, we knew that what the textbook would train you to do as a young therapist is that you have to engage and you have to build rapport and then you have to do a social history. And so it's a long process. And so we took those seven and said, what if we reverse them? Because we've only got two days and what we want people to know is what's most practical to them to decide whether somebody needs help or not. So we reversed the order and said, well, let's start with current plan, prior behavior, and resources. And if all three of those are, in a sense, negative, then we've got risk. And of course, when you think about it, current plan, prior behavior, we've got CPR. Yeah. And that's how we came up with our first parallel to physical first aid and CPR. Then 10 years later, the literature was saying that these prediction models aren't very good because if you put you and me or a professional and a non-professional in front of a scenario, most of us will get high risk correct and we'll get low risk correct, but we're all over the map as far as medium risk. And so we decided 10 years or so in to get rid of categorization and to get rid of partly because we also found that institutions or agencies were misusing it. So if they judged you high risk, then, you know, they they locked you up and, and had someone watch you every 15 minutes. Because you said after 10 years, what year are we talking here? Around what time period? We made that change in 2003 and four. And that was also a time when we had already got up to the sixth edition of the original edition in the training manual. And because of a lot of changes that we made in that 2003 period, we said, actually, we've jumped three or four editions and we're now at the 10th edition. (laughs) 
And so we launched the 10th edition in 2003 and 4. And because the International Association of Suicide Prevention Conference was in South Africa in 2005, and the president of the IASP was Lars Mellem from Oslo, Norway, he came to me and he said, okay, he says, it's time that Living Works was put onto the international sort of stage. So I want you to write a kind of a new developments article, which we'll publish before the conference. And we'll publish it in the Norwegian Suicidology Journal. So that's what we did. I wrote a new developments article that was published, and it showed that transition that we've just been talking about and why we changed from risk categorization to what we said was risk review and safe plan. So we introduced safe plan in 2003 and four, And then eventually our whole emphasis is now on safe plans. It's the risk review is kind of building inside the safety framework. Yeah, how to keep you safe, not how much risk you are to yourself. That's right. Yeah. And a check of the literature will show that we were four years in front of the other safety plan sort of authors like Stanley and Brown. Wow. Who get all the credit for safety plan kind of uh, work. That's very interesting to know because that's true, actually. Yeah. So when you, yeah. when Lars suggested this and you wrote the article and got published in the Norwegian Journal and then went to the international conference in South Africa, was that then the step yeah. change of where the demand for this training program went further than your province? Or had you already seen people using it in other places before that? Oh, no, we went outside of our boundaries to the federal prison system in the early 1980s. They were having a problem with a number of suicide deaths in the prisons, and they were having to have public hearings. And by and large, the staff were being blamed. And not only were they being blamed, but nobody sort of paid attention to the trauma that they might have had to go through in finding somebody. Um, and so one of the people who was on this provincial strategy that I was also on was a, um, an Anglican priest. He and I had worked together in another agency several years earlier, <laughs> but he went down to a conference and the correctional service people tossed the problem of suicide over to the chaplain's group, said, you solve it. <laughs> And so they were talking about how the hell are we going to solve it kind of message. And prisons too, the attitudes question is even more complex oh, than in yeah. the general population. Yeah, yeah. So the Anglican priest said, well, I'm sitting on this committee in Alberta and these guys are doing something in training. They might be helpful. So they came out and uh, somebody came out and studied what we were doing. And then we got invited to go to Eastern Canada to try it out. And uh, talking about trial by fire, because they put us in front of 40 prison guards wow. <laughs> who were pretty hard nosed. And so it turned out, you know, if we could get by those guys, uh, we could get by anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. What a first experiment outside your existing yeah. area. So that, that was the first beginning. And then the Los Angeles suicide prevention founders, Dr. Farbro and others, they, I'm not exactly still not sure how they knew about our work, but anyway, they did. And they were commissioned by the, the government of California to come up with a plan as how to help youth suicide risk people. And training had to be part of it. 
And around what time period was that? Early 80s or later? That's in 1986, 85, 86. So we didn't know this, but when they wrote the report, they said, well, as far as training is concerned, we know training around the world, what's going on. And there's only one group that can meet what you guys want. And that's these guys up in Canada. So they said to the government, they said, look, what you need to do is to get them to write you a proposal and turn it into a single source grant. And that's what they did. And so we ended up with the first single source out of state, out of country contract with the state of California. Wow. (laughs) And so they wanted us to come in and we had three years to train two people in all 58 counties, which was kind of nutso because the rural counties didn't need two people. And the big counties like Los Angeles needed 42. <laughs> needed a lot. Yeah. And from what I've heard of California, it's like a micro system of the states anyway. It's like its own country with disparate counties. Oh, yeah. And it's the same size as Canada population wise. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So it's, you know, half again as big as Australia. <laughs> and when you went in to do that, did you adjust those numbers and shuffle it around once you realized what you were dealing with? We did some of it, but they were under a fairly strict sort of uh, grant kind of mandate that said no, two in each place. <laughs> and we tried several times to say you're nuts to be doing it that way, but okay, <laughs> we'll do our best. So interesting. In 86, you're training people to train up in young people. And then 2020, you're working with California schools. It's a nice loop around over the years. Yeah. And we were working with the California educators at that time. And I still remember you had a training for trainers at several places. We'd be sitting down in the evening and talking with somebody who was a school teacher and so forth. And they would always say, You know, the school board or the school department of education has been forcing different kinds of training on us forever. Like we're we're the gatekeepers of all the kids, you know. (laughs) We're supposed to be mums and dads and doctors and nurses and experts in every subject and health issue and everything. And so I still remember a number of them saying in this informal discussion, it said this is the first course that we've ever taken that makes practical sense. And I'm prepared to go back and try and implement it, either as just an individual teacher, if I see a kid, or to convince my school that maybe we should have more of this. That's a ringing doorstep because that is one occupation that, yeah, CPD is constant. Yeah, yeah. So for us to come full circle 20 years later and work with the school board in terms of the uh, online training and... And now training students, not just the teachers. That's right. Yeah. So then we finished that project in 1989. We were still working with the correctional services, but they did what a lot of institutions will do is that once they experience something, then they start to think, well, we can do it better ourselves. Yeah, interesting. And we don't have to bring outsiders in. So it started to wear off right about the time that Dr. Tanny was on a study kind of sabbatical in Australia. And that's where he met Bruce Turley at a uh, conference in Townsville. And he was a speaker. And Bruce was intrigued with 
what he had to say. And he's probably exaggerated the story, but it, it makes a good story. He noticed that Brian had a suitcase, a big suitcase full of stuff. And Brian had brought this big suitcase of documents all the way from Canada. And he'd been speaking at different places. And no one really asked what the hell's in that suitcase. What's in the bag, Brian? What's in the bag? That's a wrap for episode two. And haven't we covered a lot of ground from Norway to Australia, from prisons to schools? Tune in to episode three to catch up with Living Works co-founder Richard Ramsey for more tall tales from around the world, including what was in Brian's suitcase. Thank you again for sharing your time and insights with us, Richard. Thank you, Kim. Great to talk with you today. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.